Cannabis Commerce continues to cultivate new markets for adventurous entrepreneurs. CannabisRadio.com welcomes the adventurous to Cannabis and Commerce, presented by GreenBiz.com. This show brings together cannabis entrepreneurs and industry experts to discuss today's important cannabis issues. Our discussions will chronicle the challenges faced by cannabis owners and the battles surrounding cannabis nationwide. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Cannabis and Commerce. I'm your host, Josh Miller. This is a show where we discuss the inner workings of the cannabis industry. Uh, my colleagues, one of them, Mazi Armomeni, is up in Washington transitioning our companies. A couple of other of my, my partners are running around Colorado, and I'm here today with one of my good friends and colleagues, Soham Shah. Uh, Soham and I work together with the Cannabis Commodities Exchange, a web app that we helped to, to develop. And uh, Soham, I welcome you on the show today. Thanks for having me, Josh. I appreciate it. No problem. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about the Cannabis Commodity Exchange, what it is, what it does, and then let's get into uh, talking about some other things, if that's all right. Yeah, sure. So the Cannabis Commodities Exchange uh, is an online wholesale trading platform for licensed cannabis businesses in uh, a couple different states that we're operating in right now, primarily uh, Colorado and Washington, where we have a, a medical and a rec market in Colorado and a separate rec marketplace in Washington. Um, basically, what we're trying to do with, with CCX, as we call it, is streamline the entire supply chain within the cannabis industry. We see a lot of inefficiencies there, and we think a central marketplace could potentially provide uh, the transparency and efficiency that this industry definitely needs. And CCX is only for licensed businesses. How do you verify their legitimacy? What we do is we ask anyone who's over the age of 21 is allowed to sign up. And what they're able to do at that point is just view anonymized uh, listings on our marketplace. They won't know where they're from. They won't know who listed them. But they can get an idea for you know market trends, market prices, uh, different stuff like that. And we, we are eventually going to be publishing some, some reports and, and providing that to other users. Um, but the second part of that process is if one of those signups does happen to be a licensed business, then what they can do is cr- uh, fill out an application where they upload their license from uh, the appropriate state uh, regulatory body. Uh, here in Colorado, we have uh, the Marijuana Enforcement Division, which is a, a department of the Department of Revenue or a division of the Department of Revenue. And in Washington, uh, the jurisdiction of of legal cannabis is given to the Washington State Liquor Control Board. And each of those uh, bodies, regulatory bodies, are charged with, uh, you know, evaluating applications for cannabis business licenses and issuing those accordingly. And how much is CCX? How much does it cost to use? Uh, It's absolutely free to use, both for licensed businesses and at this point for even for anyone over the age of 21 who wants to, uh, you know, observe how how the wholesale is starting to unfold and how it's starting to become uh, an efficient and central market that would be more reflective of most traditional industries. I had some on the show so we could talk about some other things. Specifically, uh, it's early November right now and the midterm elections just happened. Uh, we, neither of us, are elections experts. Uh, and as far as elections go, we're going to discuss them as they concern cannabis. Um, but I wanted to bring Soam on because he's been following them pretty closely and just talk about some of the things that happened around the country a few days ago on election night and how that may impact some things moving forward. So first off, Soam, why don't you give us a recap of like, Anywhere where there was some cannabis legalization reform, some type of reform up for vote and what happened on those, or at least to the best of your knowledge? 
Yeah. So, Josh, domestically, some of the some of the elections or, or ballot initiatives that we are watching closely were uh, the the adult use legalization initiatives in uh, Washington D.C., in Alaska, and in Oregon, and then uh, some medical initiatives in Florida and Guam. Um, based on those, uh, we actually had a very good turnout in terms of uh, the results that we had on those ballots. The only one that did not pass was in Florida, where the amendment required a 60% vote to pass, and they only got 57%, which, as it turns out, was uh, a higher percentage of the vote than uh, their new or their current governor incumbent got. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, there were some victories, and even in the, the defeat in Florida, I think there probably is... Um, some bright light that can shine. So I think we'll get to Florida at some point later. But well, let's... I think it's great. I mean, they they still won the popular vote. It's kind of a, in a way, it's a similar to what happened in uh, you know the 2000 election. There, you know, you won the popular vote, but that doesn't necessarily mean that what you expected to happen would happen, right? Right. And I mean, in Florida, they got 57 percent, so that's a pretty large majority. And in a southern state, I think all those things uh, should be accounted for and should be we should be aware of those things. I think it's going to speak a lot moving forward, not only in Florida but in other parts of the South. But let's talk about that later when we talk about impacts. So Guam, uh, the first territory of the United States to enact some type of marijuana or cannabis they reform. Have, they passed a medical bill uh, which will allow patients to uh, you know, procure cannabis for medication legally, which is great to see that. And it was kind of cool because we found out about Guam early in the day because of its uh, geographic location. And so we, we got to see that as a victory and, and hoped for more victories throughout. Uh, let's talk about D.C. D.C. is interesting for all kinds of reasons because it's a federal yeah. district. But what's going on there? Yeah, that was that was a really interesting one. So they've uh, they've really uh, as a city and as a district uh, embraced cannabis and ending the war on drugs. In the past year, I would say they've they've implemented a, a decriminalization measure uh, within the past eight months or so, and they were able to get enough signatures to get a full legalization initiative on the ballot for November, and it passed, which is great. Um, like you just said, it is still uh, federal territory, which makes it kind of a sticky area. So uh, from the way I understand it, Congress still has final approval on whether to implement uh, some type of retail sales or cultivation licensing system, which at this point, it's hard to say, you know, they have the, the GOP who recently just took control of both, uh, the, the Senate and they had, uh, they had, um, the house of representatives before that, uh, with that, it's hard to say whether they're going to use uh, cannabis as a kind of an issue that they want to take a very firm stance on or whether, uh, the libertarian divide within the GOP party is going to, uh, lead, a lot of party members to stray away from trying to uh, violate locally uh, enacted law. Uh, a couple of things you mentioned there, I think, are really important. So Congress has a—I think they have a veto power. They have some type of approval power, more of a veto power on laws coming out of the federal district. I mean, so even though this law has been passed, I think there is a time where they're going to get to make a stand. Um, so I think that's a really important point, and you're right about that. What are your thoughts on? I mean, despite the the GOP controlling both houses of Congress, do you see them vetoing this law, not allowing it to go through? I, I see it as something that they will probably just put on the back burner for a little while. Um, from what, from my observation of what happened this past Tuesday, uh, it seems that while the GOP won uh, in in the actual candidate elections, uh, a lot of the issues that won were fell more along a liberal, socially liberal stances or libertarian stances. 
which in my mind creates a, a huge divide within the GOP that they've been wrestling with, you know, for, you know, almost a decade now where you have people who have, who are, are religious and, and very socially conservative. And then you have the libertarian part of the GOP. And, uh, I mean, without, I, I, I just see it as, as driving a wedge in the party if, if they were forced to take a stance on it and they would lose some votes to the, the liberals. Yeah, and well, and I think cannabis is a pretty popular issue um, across party lines, even. Um, and so I think it would it would it would cost them a lot of political capital if they did make a move like that. Did not let people inside of the district who voted for this freedom have that freedom. I think it would be a shame. It would it would kill a little political capital and some of the goodwill they gained in this election. And yeah, to your point about, I mean, the country went very red. Um, as far as candidates go on this day. Um, And yet the country voted for increased access to abortion and uh, higher minimum wage and legalized marijuana almost on the whole. Um, And so it's interesting. Who knows what's going on within the parties? But there's certainly some internal struggle. And it seems like there are people on the right who are getting behind some of these issues that we see and and traditionally view as more socially liberal. And yeah, it, it still, it still spoke well for marijuana across the country, despite the GOP getting, getting power and and regaining power in the Senate. Um, And I think I I don't see them doing too much to blow up what they did in DC. A couple of things we should mention about DC before we, we get off the topic of that and onto others, DC did not create a, a system of commercial production and licensing and sale of cannabis to people, but it does it does allow people to transfer up, up to an ounce of cannabis to each other for no value. And it allows people to grow up to six plants, I think three non-mature, just like in Colorado, um, in their backyards in the federal district. And so people now have the right to grow marijuana on, you know, in federal jurisdiction. What are your thoughts about that just as a statement or symbolism or what does that all mean? Uh, I mean, it's, it is beautiful to see uh, access to cannabis uh, spreading around the country. And yes, there is something, uh, some, some beauty to the irony that uh, while cannabis remains a schedule one narcotic, according to uh, the U.S. government, the citizens of the federal district where our entire uh, federal government is housed have voted that that's not necessarily true. I, I think it's a beautiful statement. And Honestly, regardless of what the final implementation of it is, whether it's vetoed, uh, I think the vote is symbolic in and of itself. And for for the federal government to veto something that was passed by popular vote, and from from the numbers I remember, it was upwards of 60% that approved in, in D.C., that would be uh, a very hostile statement to the residents where, where our federal government is housed. Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, and I think all in all, just the statement that people in D.C. made, those citizens made, uh, is a pretty powerful one. Again, unlike what happened in Oregon and Alaska and what we see in Colorado and Washington, there is no there's no commercial production or licensing or sale. Um, but people do have the right to grow it. They do have the right to give it away. I mean, it's probably going to be kind of reminiscent of what we saw in that year in Colorado um, before 2014 when when rec stores opened where you could legally possess an ounce of marijuana. You could trade it and do those things as well. But if you didn't have a medical card, however you procured your marijuana, however you procured it, uh, whether if you didn't grow it under those rights, then you likely got it illegally. So you could have it legally once you got it. But uh, however you got it was likely illegal. So they may face a similar situation like that. And, you know, that does have a a very positive impact when we talk about the war on drugs, Um, especially with uh, with the racial makeup that that Washington, D.C. has. It's a very diverse place. And 
um, from everything we've studied about the effects of the war on drugs, incarceration rates and, and drug uh, felonies or drug offenses are drastically higher or enforced more against people of color, Hispanic and, and African-Americans. And uh, the fact that it is now legalized at least lowers it as a priority for law enforcement which I think will have a positive impact for, for the residents of D.C. and will speak well about what we're doing to end the war on drugs. Nice. So that's a really great thought and a good point for a break. Again, Josh Miller with Soham Shah, and we'll be back in just a moment. Thanks. Cannabis and Commerce, presented by GreenBiz.com. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Looking to capitalize your cannabis business? You need the help of professionals who know the ins and outs of this industry and can help your business grow. You need the Green Consulting Group. We grow cannabis. Based in Colorado and working nationwide, we are experts in business strategy and understand the intricacies of operating within existing regulatory structures of this burgeoning industry. We offer business planning and market analysis, dispensary and cultivation management, marijuana license preparation, and regulatory compliance services. The Green Consulting Group are your consummate cannabis consultants and advocates, offering customized, cutting-edge professional consulting services to the cannabis industry. Find out how we can help you by visiting the Green Consulting Group at G-R-E-E-N-E-B-I-Z.com. Green Consulting Group does not constitute legal or other professional advice on any subject and always recommends seeking the advice of independent counsel and business professionals. The smoke is rising, and the next crop of podcasts devoted to cannabis providers and enthusiasts are ready to be harvested. Welcome to the Cannabis Radio Network, founded by respected rainmakers who have been producing award-winning podcasts for over a decade. Industry headlines, business updates, medical reports, marketing, and e-commerce education rolled up perfectly for your consumption. Let's grow together. The Cannabis Radio Network. CannabisRadio.com. The conversation continues. Welcome back to Cannabis and Commerce, presented by GreenBiz.com, only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back to Cannabis and Commerce, the show where we discuss the inner workings of the cannabis industry. I'm your host, Josh Miller. Today I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Soham Shaw. We've been discussing the 2014 midterm elections, uh, specifically as they pertain to cannabis, the events of election night, what happened in, re- in the way of results, and what that means for those communities and for the overall country, really, as, as we move forward through cannabis legalization. We've been discussing Guam. We talked D.C. Uh, and now we're going to be discussing Alaska and Oregon, other places where commercial legalization measures passed. And then we're going to move into talking about Florida a uh, place where a medical marijuana initiative or amendment to its constitution failed, um, but it failed at a, at a vote of 57%. All right, so, so let's talk about Alaska and Oregon. Let's talk first about Alaska, um, just because, I, you know, there's not as many people there. It may be a smaller impact, but what do you know about Alaska? What does it really say um, for the overall legalization movement? And what are your, what are your thoughts on Alaska? Um, I mean, obviously, it's always great to see another state join, uh, join the legalization movement. Uh, I have personally been to Alaska. I think it's a beautiful place. Um, from from the people that I've met in Alaska and other people that I've met from Alaska, um, and just what I know about the way of life up there, it is it's uh, a, it's a sense of independence, you know, and a sense of living out uh, of your own will and of your own accord. And I think that lines up very well with 
the idea to break away from uh, the federal scheduling on, on drugs and be able to create own, your own laws as a state. Nice. No, and uh, the, the sense of independence, I think that's through a lot of the West and really our country as a whole, but you really, you see it embodied a lot in Alaska and the people up there. I, like you, I'm not very surprised by this, this measure passing. Uh, I don't know too much about it. I don't know too much about the licensing scheme. There is going to be cannabis for sale. I think there are rights to grow as well. And cannabis is going to be taxed on the recreational level uh, at $50 an ounce in Alaska. And that's all I really know about the measure right now. We'll have to see how the rulemaking comes through, how many dispensaries and cultivation operations are going to be allowed to be licensed, and how really that commercial industry in Alaska, the recreational marijuana industry, is going to going to be birthed. Alaska, like some of the other far western states, California, Oregon, until recently, and Washington, have more deregulated medical marijuana systems. And so it'll be an interesting transition for Alaska to go into what will be more of a regulated recreational marijuana system. And hopefully that'll have some positive impacts for that state. All right, let's talk about Oregon. Oregon is a pretty big measure. It's a, it's another state people, I think, expected to fall for cannabis pretty quickly. But it has a lot of people. And uh, from what we know of the law, I think there's a lot of business opportunity, too. So why don't you give us a few thoughts on Oregon, so on, uh, and then we can talk about some of the potential impacts moving forward there. Yeah, uh, I think you said it, you said it really well. Uh, I don't think many people were surprised to see that Oregon passed. It is once again great to see another state join the party. Uh, I think it was actually more of a surprise that in 2012, when Washington and or- and Colorado approved uh, Amendment 64 and I-502, that Oregon actually uh, did not approve their legalization measure at that time. But in the long run, from what I know about uh, Measure 91, uh, it looks like they did a lot more research, and I know a lot of that was probably uh, the input of the Marijuana Policy Project and a, a number of other stakeholders from Colorado and Washington's industries. But the way that they have drafted the laws and set up the the system that it, that is going to be built, I think is going to be a lot less inhibited, like uh, like the industries in Colorado and Washington potentially are. Um, that's not to say that, that what's been done already is wrong. It's, it was a new frontier and we, we had to tread very, very carefully to make sure that we weren't, you know, we weren't uh, permitting or tolerating or, uh, unintentionally allowing some type of illegitimate activity to happen with, within uh, a potentially legal market. Uh, but the way, uh, the way Oregon's, uh, bill measure 91 is set up, uh, the taxation is going to be a lot lower at the wholesale levels for, for, uh, cannabis and cannabis products. Uh, it's around $35 per ounce is the wholesale tax and uh, I believe $2 per edible or oh, I'm sorry, $5 per plant was the other number that I was thinking of. Uh, these are these are all excise taxes applied at the wholesale level, which is very, very uh, different to both Colorado and Washington. Colorado's is a little bit higher. We charge 15% excise tax at the wholesale level. In Washington, they have three different levels of licenses. They have producers, processors, and retailers. Uh, The producer-to-processor transaction is taxed at 25% excise tax. The same applies to the processor-to-retailer and the retailer-to-consumer. So there are a lot of taxes that are happening there, and it's really cutting out the margin, which uh, from, in my experience, from what I've seen both there and here in Colorado, that only perpetuates the existence of the black market, which is something that we've worked so hard and continue to work hard to, to eliminate. So the way, the way that Oregon's uh, measure is set up, it, it really does facilitate that. And, and even though, you know, 
tax and tax revenue for for the state and for local communities is one of those big um, arguments proponents as to why they, to pass these. Uh, kind of what you're saying is that if you tax it at such a high rate, then you're gonna you're gonna price people in the in the legal markets just out of the market and Back people are gonna to the go black market. People are gonna go to the black Absolutely. market. Absolutely, it's uh, it's unnecessary, and it's either that or you'll have business owners that realize that the only way that they can compete with the black market is to drop their prices. And when they do that, they're almost eliminating their margin to the point where it's not a, it's no longer a sustainable business model. So if we're trying to build uh, an enduring industry, it's we, we want to start with a lower tax. And if the burden of enforcement is too high, we can always increase the tax marginally. But people have a lot of, a lot of trouble, whether it's from the voting side or from the government side, uh, giving up tax dollars, you know, and, and when it comes to regulation, obviously we know better than anyone that why it's so important to, to have an industry that's tightly regulated. But from what I see there, it's it's set up to to succeed a little bit uh, a little bit better. Um, and and from the from the personal consumption side and personal possession side as well, where we have one ounce limits in Colorado and Washington. Uh, in in Oregon, you are legally allowed to have eight ounces at your at your place of residence, and you wow. can transport, uh, I believe, up to two ounces, or maybe it's just one ounce, not a uh, hundred. No, uh, you can have up to one ounce of usable cannabis in public, and up to eight ounces stored at your at your place without being in violation of any different laws. Um, there's some other proposed regulations that I've heard that are outside of Measure 91. Um, if you want to talk about that, we can. Well, what, are any of those uh, of interest? You think? I think they're very interesting. Sure. Yeah. Um, the first one that we've heard is that there could potentially be, and once again, this is purely speculative. I don't. I don't want to make this seem like I've read this in any laws or heard this from a government official. This is um, more or less word word around the industry in some parts of the industry. Uh, but in Washington, when, while I was up there, I heard from a couple people that they're uh, talking about negotiating some type of border treaty between Oregon and Washington to allow uh, the transportation and uh, you know for commercial purposes of cannabis across that one state line. So it wouldn't you know wouldn't be going into Idaho or down into California or anywhere else, or at least that wouldn't be legal. But they do they are considering, or from what we've heard, they're talking about opening up that border to allow some type of uh, combined uh, retail economy there. You know, that's uh, that's just a really interesting topic on, on a lot of levels because it does, the minute uh, people cross those borders, interstate commerce is invoked and the federal government and its jurisdiction is, is invoked. Uh, however, the, the House of Representatives has recently stripped for 2015 the DEA money to enforce medical and or recreational marijuana laws or federal marijuana laws in places where states have passed and have legalized marijuana, and even in some states where they haven't. And so if Oregon and Washington do this, they definitely are invoking the powers of the federal government. And at the same time, there may not be the enforcement dollars, energy, or concern for anyone to do anything about it. And the states of Oregon and Washington, almost as sovereigns, maybe decide to, may decide to open their borders and allow the floodgates to, to come through. Now, that has a lot of big impacts, and I think we need to – it's about time for a break. So let's take a quick break, and then we'll discuss a couple of the impacts of what that may mean. And then we'll move on to Florida and close out our election summary. Thanks again for being with us, Soham, and thank you all for listening. We'll be back in just a moment. This is Cannabis and Commerce. Cannabis and Commerce, presented by GreenBiz.com. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Chronicling the latest cannabis industry news and headlines. Welcome to the State of Cannabis 
bringing you fact-based news and views and keeping listeners on the pulse of what's happening in the industry today. Advocates and analysts will join us to discuss the ongoing path to reform and legislation. The State of Cannabis. On demand anytime, only on CannabisRadio.com. Hi, I'm Montel Williams. Most of you know me as a talk show host, but I'm also an author, actor, single father of four, a fitness writer, avid snowboarder, and I'm also a medical marijuana patient. Like many of the million people who are living with multiple sclerosis, I'm in pain every single day. And sometimes my nerves are so raw that if you brushed up against me in an elevator, I'd scream. I can't sleep at night from the pain, and sometimes the spasms in my legs are so intense they will wake me up throughout the night. I've tried the strongest prescription medications available, and I'm going to tell you, they do not work. In fact, they leave me in a stupor, and most of the time, it's impossible to even live your life. Now, I've tried medical marijuana, and I'm going to tell you something, it works. If you'd like more information about medical marijuana, you can contact the Marijuana Policy Project at mpp.org or call 1-877-JOIN-MPP. The conversation continues. Welcome back to Cannabis and Commerce, presented by GreenBiz.com, only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back to Cannabis and Commerce. I'm your host, Josh Miller, here with my friend and colleague, Soham Shah. We've been discussing the midterm elections of 2014, specifically how those elections impacted cannabis. Before the break, we were talking about uh, Oregon's new legalization measure passing and the potential for the states of Washington and Oregon to agree to open their borders and allow for interstate commerce of cannabis, uh, even though there may be some federal prohibition there. Who knows the legal impacts of that? It would certainly be a question constitutional scholars would have to would have to answer, um, along with many other lawyers and government officials, I'm sure as well. Um, but so real quick, let's talk about some business impacts, because you were discussing Washington's high taxes, and how Oregon has a more reasonable tax structure. If these borders open, what about those Washington licensees that have opened up along the border in Vancouver, Washington, just, you know, on the north side of Portland or the west side of Portland? Um, what about those businesses? What, what could happen to them if the borders are open? Um, you know, obviously there is some fear there of them losing out on business on people crossing into Oregon to purchase their cannabis because of uh, the lower the lower tax rate and um, most probably the lower end consumer price. Uh, but it's something that right now anybody who does business in, so- in the southern part of Washington has to deal with anyway. Um, the way that taxes are set up now, Washington for many goods charges a very, very high tax, alcohol included where Oregon does not charge any type of sales tax. So cannabis aside, I've heard from people in Washington that if they buy a a vehicle, you're talking $20,000. A lot of sales tax. A lot of sales tax on that. You're talking about people going down and stocking up on $500,000 worth of liquor because there's no sales tax on it. Um, So it's something that, that obviously I would assume the Washington government and the Washington populace is already familiar with that their tax structure does have the risk of pushing somebody to a neighboring state that has a much more friendly tax structure. Um, now, when you're talking about the end consumer, uh, the maximum, as, I, as I've read from 91, as far as I know, the maximum amount of cannabis that are a 21-year-old consumer could purchase in a store is one ounce and 
assuming they have reasonable market prices. I don't see that even with tax being more than two hundred and fifty dollars. Um, I, I see from the business's perspective where they're a little bit worried, but it's once again, it's the same thing if, if you were a liquor store and you opened up shop in Vancouver, Washington, or if you were a, uh, a car dealership and you opened up shop in Vancouver, Washington, you are you know very well aware of the sales tax, sales tax risk. And once again, I don't think anyone is really surprised that Oregon was the next state to pass. And, and also, knowing what you know about sales tax, it may be not a surprise as well that they have a more reasonable tax structure. And so, yeah, it may affect some of those businesses as those rules are made and as businesses are licensed to grow and process and sell recreational marijuana in Oregon. So um, you mentioned there are one or two other interesting things about Oregon you want to throw out there so people know. This one's real quick. There's no local tax allowed. So uh, in Colorado and Washington, I'm not sure 100% on Washington, Colorado, local municipalities are allowed to impose bans or additional taxes uh, beyond what the state charges. Um, in Oregon, they're capping that. So, uh, you know, some of the local jurisdictions don't get carried away and overtax businesses to raise money for school or other uh, municipal projects. Something that's interesting that kind of ties into what we just talked about, though, with Vancouver, Washington, is uh, where Colorado has a two-year residency requirement to apply for any type of business license in the industry other than a testing lab. Uh, Washington, I believe, has a three-month uh, residency requirement. Mm-hmm. Oregon uh, is not creating any residency requirement, which uh, in the grand scheme of things essentially opens up the door for out-of-state investment, and they're not going to borrow that. Um, the other thing that is they're not creating uh, mandatory separations or uh, alignments in the supply chain where Colorado's medical industry had a 70% vertical integration rule that was carried over into retail for the first nine months and mm-hmm. just expired in October and where Washington system has a, a mandatory disintegration of the supply chain where you're not allowed to be a retailer and a processor or a producer – Oregon is basically saying that you can apply for a production license, a processing license, a retail license, a testing lab license, five of each of them, two of each of them. If you have the capital and you can show that that you can run a good business and you can apply for as many licenses as you want, which is, once again, in the interest of a a free and minimally regulated industry or self-regulated industry, really. Yeah, and so Oregon may may become a new Wild West of of cannabis as well uh, in ways and, and, and in a business way where there's lots of opportunity, too. So it'll be interesting to see it unfold. One last thought, Tony? One last thought. Sorry to, to get so caught up on Oregon, but I think it's fascinating. Um, so I, I have a, a little bit of background in finance. That's what I, I studied in school. Um, so I keep up with some of the, the news that comes out on, on interesting new investments, stuff like cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. Um, something that's interesting is we we're, we're really want to see what happens with the way uh, Oregon's regulators uh, you know, talk about and create rules surrounding bartering. Because they don't have sales tax there, there's not really anything the state is losing out on by permitting bartering. It's not like you're bartering and you're not reporting sales tax. There is no sales tax to report. So if they were to allow that, it would open the avenue for some interesting transactions because, um, as some people may recall, earlier this year when uh, the FBI seized a large amount of of Bitcoin from Dread Pirate Roberts, the the username allegedly behind the the infamous Silk Road, when they seized all this cryptocurrency, uh, they they forced the IRS to make uh, some type of judgment on how to classify and tax uh, cryptocurrency in general and Bitcoins as an asset. 
And what the ruling was is that it's not a currency and it's actually just an asset and should be uh, treated and taxed as such. Where that comes into a very, very interesting uh, opportunity in Oregon is that if they permit bartering uh, pursuant to the IRS's own ruling, cryptocurrency is not money. It's it's an asset, which means it can be bartered for another asset, uh, marijuana perhaps. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how uh, how that plays out. Uh, I honestly I don't know how it's going to happen, but I'm I personally am following pretty closely. But how what is becoming uh, an almost legitimate or a legitimate financial exchange could also work into that bartering system that Oregon has created. All right, I uh, I think we're going to have to end the show here. I don't think we're going to have too much time to give to Florida, and we, we're sorry to all the Florida listeners out there. Uh, you were definitely on our hearts and on our minds, Florida. I am from Louisiana, so I certainly wanted places in the South. To to fall. You getting 50% of the vote in favor of the amendment and allowing medical marijuana, I think, is a massive victory and a massive statement. And there's not much to talk about because there's no system that's going to be opened at this point. Uh, but I think 2016 is going to be an interesting year for yeah. you all. Uh, I think you'll probably go medical and you may even go recreational that time, depending on how the wave of public, uh, public opinion, I think, has turned by that time. Uh, so we wish you all the best. I think 57% in a place like Florida and in the face of all that opposition and all of those dirty lying ads that were being uh, thrown out there in Florida, uh, you all still did really well. So congratulations, even in defeat. Uh, Soham, this has been a pleasure. Uh, I've had you on once or twice before that, that may seem out of order to some of you listeners because they may get, they get, may get posted slightly, uh, slightly in a different order. But know that I really thank having you. Uh, I really appreciate having you on the show. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me, Josh. No problem. Appreciate being here. You're great friend full of good thoughts i love your passion for cannabis i share one myself and i wish you the best as we move forward to all you out there thank you again for joining us we'll be back soon with another topic uh, another edition of cannabis and commerce for everyone out there listening whoever you are and wherever you are i hope you keep fighting for a little more freedom have a good one thanks the opinions and thoughts expressed by the Green Consulting Group and its guests on this radio show do not constitute legal or other professional advice on any matter. We always recommend that listeners seek the advice of independent counsel. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.